was normal. Okay, let's do it one more time. I'll count out loud. Three, two, one. Mental health is normal. <laughs> okay, but we'll say it the other. Yeah, three, three, two, one. Mental, Mental health, health is normal. normal. Hello, I'm Emily Angstreich, and today we are hosting Kim Kowski. Hello, Kim. If you could just give me a brief summary of D.D. Hirsch and what it does just for people who are just coming in and have never heard of the organization, that would be great. Well, D.D. Hirsch is a mental health agency in Los Angeles. We have 11 locations. We provide mental health, substance use, and suicide prevention services. Our suicide prevention center is the first in the nation and a leader in crisis services, training, research, uh, support. And then we also have uh, residential and outpatient uh, treatment for children and adults with mental illness and substance use issues. Pretty much all of our clients are uh, people who live in poverty or just above the poverty line, although our Suicide Prevention Center serves everybody. So do you have a personal experience with mental health that kind of got you interested in working with Dee Dee Hirsch? When I was 14, I wanted to kill myself, and I came very close to an attempt. I was looking for a rope and a tree, and I was, I was very, I felt very ashamed of myself and had a very difficult childhood situation. But I remembered that there was this suicide prevention hotline number that I used to see advertised on the bus. So I called it. And a woman spoke with me for over an hour, and I don't remember her name. I don't remember a lot about the call, but I do remember very vividly that she was the first person who ever helped me kind of understand myself and uh, that I wasn't alone, that that I wasn't a freak, that I had, that there were reasons good reasons that I felt the way I felt and you know she normalized it for me and really saved my life so I always remembered that then my brother who I had a younger brother we were very very close he always told everybody I raised him and he ended up having severe mental health issues he had bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. uh and substance use issues, and he made three really serious uh, suicide attempts. Drug overdoses, where he had to have his stomach pumped, and one time he tried to asphyxiate himself on exhaust fumes of a car, and um, that was very, very painful, and um, I did end up losing him about 15 years ago, and so I had a background in journalism, and you know, I was a writer, but I think I, I always had a very deep interest in mental health, and I had, you know, I, I ended up uh, working, I guess it was after my brother died, I decided to, to volunteer for the crisis line, 
And that's quite an interesting experience because it's like a hundred years, a hundred hours of training yeah. uh, to become a, a crisis counselor. And then you, you uh, agree to, you know, four hours a week for a year of volunteer work. I mean, it's, it's not something you do lightly. And it was an incredible experience. Uh, I loved it. I ended up becoming a supervisor. I, I did it for about five years. And I think there was something very healing for me in it because there was a sense I, I had, and, and I guess I still do, that you know I couldn't save my brother, but I have been able to use experience, that background, to connect with others who have been suffering, mm. to point them to good resources, you know, to help other people so that it doesn't feel like, like that loss, you know, that there is something that came of that loss, something I do in his memory and a way that he kind of lives on for me and, and people I know. Well, I, I, I'm, I love that and that, that's beautiful and I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have, and now I, I, for the last four years, I've been the director of communications and development at D.B. Hirsch. So my career kind of, you know, has grown here in different ways. And, and I have pictures of my brother <laughs> in my office. And I, we do a, something called Alive and Running, which is a, a 5K for the Suicide Prevention Center. We get... 2,000 people, we raised like $375,000 or so last wow. year. Uh, uh, I have a team and I call it Brothers and Sons and, you know, I raise money um, for it as well and um, so anyway, that's another way of sort of keeping his memory alive and then, you know, his friends will often, you know, uh, exchange messages and things on Facebook and it helps. Helps. Well, that's uh, that's amazing, and it's so great that you have a way to help not only honor his memory but help so many people like him. So when right. like when you do work with Dee Dee Hirsch, do you still do like are you still a crisis hotline person, or are you more like behind the scenes well, now? Well, now I have a different role, and you know I I, I don't work on the crisis line anymore. But as the communications director, I mean, Dee Dee Hirsch is a very big agency. We have over 500 employees, 11 locations. Um, our, we have the Suicide Prevention Center, which is the first in the United States and probably the most you know, comprehensive center for suicide prevention. We, do, we don't just have a crisis line like a lot of places. We have support groups for people who have attempted and people who have lost others. We have trainings we do in schools. We, we train the FBI, police. Um, we're out in the community all the time. We uh, participate in a lot of research with top suicide experts around the country. Uh, you know, we, we train other agencies how to have support groups that are considered, you know, best practices for how to how, how to run a support group for people who are suicidal, something that is sort of a newer idea. A lot of people were afraid to even do that kind of thing. We train mental health professionals how to 
uh, work with people who are suicidal. That's a big issue because it can be, you would think that somebody who is suicidal, that would be the first person who would be able to get mental health care. And, yes. and often it's very difficult if you're suicidal because psychiatrists don't want to see you or there's long waiting lists or, or, you know, we can't see you for three weeks, four weeks. Well, how is someone supposed to get by for three or four weeks if they're feeling suicidal? You just sit still and are like... (laughs) So, so, you know, so we do a lot of really great work and I'm involved in all aspects of communications for the agency. So in addition to what we do with the Suicide Prevention Center, we also have uh, clinics for children and adults and our clinics are really all of the people who we see are people who you know live at or just above the poverty line they're on medi-cal these are people that wouldn't necessarily have access to mental health care if not for us and places like us and we do really good care uh, we provide excellent evidence-based, you know, high-quality care. So, um, and then we also have residential treatment facilities for adults, and we have one that's very unique and wonderful uh, for mothers who can live with their children up to age six while they're getting treated for uh, substance use issues and mental health issues. So the children can stay at the facility with the parents? Yeah. Well, that's that's amazing. Cause I that's, know that's Vanta, yeah. I know one thing specifically that I love about Dee Dee Hirsch is how you guys focus so much on places where poverty really does limit the access to mental health care. But I'm also curious how, in those areas, how does stigma kind of play into limiting just people's willingness to accept or go seek out mental health care? Well, you know. Uh... It's interesting, Dee Dee Hirsch, uh, this agency has been around since 1942. It started uh, in just after the Great Depression. There was, you know, a group of women who were concerned about what would happen to uh, women who were, you know, impoverished and having hysteria or other sorts of symptoms that they didn't really even understand exactly. And so that's how Dee Dee Hirsch, how this agency started. It wasn't called Dee Dee Hirsch at the time. <laughs> but um, we have, over the years, have continued to, to really try to focus on communities that are affected by poverty and stigma, erasing stigma, is a huge part of our mission as well. And we think they go together, uh, that the reason that those two things are so important is that, first of all, stigma can affect everybody, but certain communities experience it in specific ways. For instance, there's a lot of stigma in Asian American or Korean communities, Uh, a lot of pride and a lot of, um, it's just not something you would discuss. Mental health issues, you know, would be considered shameful, not just to the individual, but the whole family. So there's a, a specially 
large amount of stigma around that. And that's one of the reasons we see such a high suicide rate in the Korean American community. I guess what I want to say is, you know, stigma can create an extra barrier where, especially where poverty is already a big barrier. You know, if you barely have money to pay your rent and your gas bill and your phone bill and you know your daughter or son is having mental health issues I mean there's just not enough resources to go around for the basic necessities and there can be a feeling sometimes that you know mental health care is a luxury well we know it really isn't it's a you know without good mental health, if you have mental illness, I mean, everything can suffer, and uh, people's ability to care for themselves can be very severely impacted by untreated mental illness, so it is an essential uh, thing, but if you're already, you know, people who are struggling with poverty, it can be very difficult to get mental health care or to know where to go, and that's why we try to be there for for people who wouldn't otherwise know where they could get help. What do you think are the next steps that, as a society, we should be doing to make access to mental health care more affordable and just more accessible? Well, um, I feel that mental health care, there's excellent mental health care if you're very poor or very wealthy. The people who really have a hard time accessing good care is sort of the middle class. Often, you know, they don't, maybe they don't qualify for services at a place like D.D. Hirsch, but they can't really afford a $300 an hour psychiatrist either. And what do you do if you're in that in-between? I think those people really have a hard time. And I'm not saying, even if you have all the resources in the world, uh, it's hard to either, you know, be dealing with a mental illness or having a loved one dealing with a mental illness. So, uh, but if you add to that, you know, financial issues, if you add to that stigma, it really makes it so difficult to help people to, to, to be able to live, uh, you know, productive lives without treatment. So it's so important, I think, that for us to think about mental health care, for, you know, when it's needed, it, it's, it's not a luxury. It's not something, I mean, it is an essential part of well-being to have good mental health care and it should be available for everyone. So so what do you think that that's a step like to provide more mental health care? Do you think that that's just something that there needs to be more awareness that that's a problem or is that something that you think the local governments need to address or the national government? Like what what would you say is the solution to that? I mean, I think it's it's uh there's a lot of things that will that need to happen to increase access to mental health care for everyone. You know, we need uh, insurance companies to cover it more generously. 
we need uh, more mental health practitioners. Uh, you know, there's a shortage, uh, hard to believe in a place like Los Angeles, but there are many parts of the country where there just is a shortage of, of mental health uh, professionals and, um, and, and a shortage of those who know how to deal with things like suicide. There's also, I think, mental health, and this is a, a personal opinion, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it has kind of, you know, it's definitely developed and grown over the last hundred years, but it, it's not, um, we have a lot of uh, research and science but it's, it's kind of just really coming into its own as a real, uh, it, you know, where there are best practices, there are techniques and, and treatments that are known to be better than others, and yet you still hear about people, you know, spending years and years in certain kinds of therapy, are they really even getting help? where short-term therapy might be actually preferable and more important, or, you know, where they also have, uh, you know, there's a lot of bias against medications. You hear about that. People don't want to take medication, and yet, you know, a combination of medication and, and short-term therapy often is, a, is very effective. So I think we need a greater understanding of what treatments really work and are preferable and, and, and should be used because I, I, I think um, it's still a little bit of like a wild west out there. You know, a lot of different techniques and treatments and not everyone <laughs> that you would meet, not every therapist that you might go to really knows what they're doing. So yeah. <laughs> more education, more research, more consistency about what what are best practices of mental health care. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I mean, I've had I've seen and had my fair share of mental health professionals, and some of them really have known what they're doing, whereas others, it's just like I knew. Like after right. the first meeting, I was like, I can't be here anymore. What's going on? It's well, thank you so much, and then. The last thing I'm going to ask is, why do you believe that it's important to be having a conversation, an open dialogue about mental health? Well, uh, mental health is a, an essential part of well-being. It's as important as physical health, as spiritual health. It's really, um, you know, without it really almost nothing else is possible for, for many people. Mental health is as essential as physical health and spiritual health. It, it's sometimes not as visible because mental illness can be sort of, uh, people can mask it sometimes or, you know, you don't always know what somebody is feeling. Uh, whereas, you know, somebody has a broken leg, uh, that can be easy to see, but there, but, um, mental illness is, even if it's not visible always, sometimes it is very visible, but it's, you know, it's just an essential part of well-being. You know, one of the things about suicide prevention is making sure that everybody knows what the warning signs are, and um, if 
we all know and recognize, you know, the, the warning signs and know what to do, we can all work together to really make our community safer. And there are uh, times where, you know, somebody might be saying things that don't sound right, like, God, I feel like such a burden, or I, I wish I weren't here anymore, where they don't necessarily use the word suicide, but I just don't feel like my life has any purpose. Uh, those kinds of comments are often warning signs that somebody is really having a, a mental health crisis and um, could be thinking about suicide. And if someone you know is making comments like that or if you notice that they're, you know, suddenly big changes in behavior, like they're not sleeping or not eating or, or maybe sleeping all the time or eating too much um, or, you know, Sometimes people can, can be sad or sometimes you see them, they're more aggressive than usual or irritable. These can be signs and if you see someone, someone you know, or even somebody on the street that doesn't, that looks like there's something going on, you can consider it an invitation to ask them, are you okay? Do you need anything? Can I help you? You know, and even directly asking someone if they're feeling suicidal, a lot of people are worried that it might put the idea in their head, but we know from uh, a lot of research and experience that people don't, it doesn't put the idea in their head. If they're thinking about suicide and somebody asks them, it makes them feel like they're being seen and heard, and that's a way that you actually can help a person. Yeah. And then direct them to the right resource. That's really helpful, actually. And, I always am worried that and, it's going to come across as strange to like, just ask them. But yeah. It's... No, I know people don't understand that, that it's actually, if you ask somebody, you know, who's, you know, making comments or giving away their possessions all of a sudden, that's another big warning sign. Um, you know, if you ask them about suicide, it, it doesn't put the idea in their head. Now, the other thing is knowing what resources to give. The 24-7 National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, uh, the one that Logic made uh, a song out of it, 1-800-273-8255. That's the number. It works wherever you are in the nation. We're a, a member of that network and we take like a hundred thousand calls and texts and chats a year uh, with the lifeline um, but that number will work wherever you are and you will get a compassionate crisis counselor We're, it's a multilingual line we, we have Spanish and English 24-7 but also other languages we, we do offer other languages as well so, an important resource for people to know about. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for being on here today and for offering all of your insights. For more information and resources, visit www.ddhirsch.org. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Help, I'm Normal. I'm Emily Angstreich, and I can't wait to see you again. Uh-huh.